So I think after this morning, I want to introduce legislation that we get an hour extra sleep every Saturday night going into Sunday morning. Because coming here this morning, both with the extra hour of sleep and like the 50 degree weather, if you're not awake this morning, it's hopeless. You're never going to be awake. Like it was Chris this morning. We're glad that you're here. In fact, this is a very uh, unique time for us. I'm so excited. I'm excited most Sundays. But I'm, in particular, I'm excited about this Sunday because we've had just a lot of stuff happening over the course of the last several weeks, but especially the last week. From about this point last Sunday to this point this Sunday, I'm not kidding. I could probably say this every week, but I really, really mean it this week. This is probably my best, my, my favorite week I've, I've ever had a part of in, in any church ministry. Some really, really cool things happening. Michael shared some of the wins already this morning. Uh, but but if, if, if just to kind of recap some of those things, because it's a really, really big deal. Last Sunday morning, if you're here, we were wrapping up a series called Freeway. And, and at the very end, we had the chain and all this stuff. And if you weren't here, we had a chain down front of, of regrets and, and things in the past that hurt people. They said, I want to break the chain of that bondage in my life. And I want to have a bold declaration of freedom. So we gave a chance for people to come down, rip that thing up. And some people were like aggressive, like they were mad at it, ripping it up into pieces and throwing it down. And, and then just worshiping God freely. And from that point on, uh, Michael talked about the wedding on Wednesday night and how cool that was to, to see everyone coming together and family groups coming together for that. Just one of my favorite experiences I've had this year. And then Friday night, uh, Friday during the day, we we're kind of getting set up for trunk or treat. And, and some people came up, someone in particular came up and asked me, they said, what are your expectations tonight? I said, you know, the last time they did this, I've been here for about five and a half years. They haven't done trunk or treat in that whole time. It's probably been seven years since they've done this. First time in years we've done this. I have no expectations going in at all. I'm just excited seeing the number of people from our church that bought into this, that decorated their trunks. And I mean, they went all out decorating the trunks. We showed up and they said, what are your expectations? I said, I really don't have any expectations. And I had, I had gone out myself because I want to go all out. Michael already shared the whole gator thing. And I had this gator head, and the kids had reached their hand inside the gator head. And it was like an 11-foot gator. Like, it was a big head. And they had reached their hand in the gator head to get the candy. And it wasn't live. It was dead. It was just a head. Um, but, but they had to reach their hand in the gator head to get the candy. And I, and I said, I want to go all out. So I bought this big box of candy from Sam's. And it had like 290 pieces of candy. So the first kids show up, and they showed up a little bit early. It's like 620, and they're showing up, and I'm like, you know, go ahead and take two candy. It's okay. Take a couple of them. Have a good time. About five minutes in, I looked up, and there's like a stream of people coming, and I'm like, you know what? Just take one, one candy, kid. Like, what was? And, and literally, my big box of candy was out in the first half hour, and I'm like, what, what's going on? And, and people just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And I'm like, dude, this, this is incredible. People bring in extra candy. They actually had someone at the very end run out and buy 15 more bags of candy because we'd run out. Like, it was a really, really cool experience. And as I'm watching this, you know, I, I said with the, with the family group experience on Wednesday night with the wedding, I said, that's what church is supposed to do. And then with Friday night, with people going all out and, and loving on the community, I said, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and I sat here and I, I saw all those people coming in. And I said, man, this is telling us as a church there's a community right here that we have to find the best way possible to reach them and then do our best to passionately share the love of Jesus. Sometimes in practical ways, sometimes through spoken word, we have to do our very best in practical ways to be able to share the love of Jesus with them. Because ultimately our goal, and, and, and years ago I was, I was at a church where they did a lot of events, and there was one guy, and a lot of times at churches, not like Bridgepoint, but a lot of churches where they're probably more traditional setting, uh, there's kind of normally one person that's kind of considered himself to be the gatekeeper, normally someone been at the church forever, and they're the gatekeeper, and they watch over the funds, and, and they would watch an event, and they say, well, we're going to spend so much in this event, and I remember specifically, we had this huge event, and the whole community showed up for it, and, and then he would watch and say, but no one's coming to church 
on Sunday morning after that event that we're reaching on Friday night or Saturday night. Like we're not seeing any benefit to it from what we do on Friday night to what happens on Sunday morning. And I want to say that's not the point. Like if I put myself in the mindset of an average person that shows up on a Friday night, we did trunk or treat here, put it in our setting. People show up and they're excited because it's a safe place for the kids to come and trick-or-treat. Like that's, they're not coming here on Friday night saying, man, I'm looking for a church home on Sunday morning. Let me go see what they do on Friday night at Trunk or Treat. They come saying, I want a safe place for my kids to come and to be able to trick-or-treat in a safe environment. And so, so they show up here, and it's not a logical step in their mind to say, man, now Sunday morning I'm going to start going to church. Or sometimes that happens. If that's you, we're glad that you're here. But for the average person, it's not a logical leap to go from one thing to the next. But Jesus commands us to love our community anyway. So we're not looking for necessarily an outcome from that. We're not looking to do something. We're looking to be some people. To be, literally be the the church of Christ. To to, to follow him. To aggressively follow him. And if he loves us, then it's our responsibility to mirror that love on the world around us. And I'm convinced if we do that loudly enough, and we do that consistently enough, and we do that passionately enough, that eventually people start saying, man, I don't know what's going on at that church. But I know they love our community. And so I do that through things like day of service. We do that through things like trunk or treat. We do that uh, through things like the block party to try to let the community know, man, we are here and we love you. And we want to love you at the same love Jesus has for us. No strings attached. We're welcome. We want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here, and we're going to love on you as best we can. If we do that consistently enough and passionately enough, I believe that God is honored, and we're going to get the increase because of that. In fact, I'm convinced as we approach Scripture this morning, Jesus is, is, is teaching us. We're kicking off a new series. And if you've been with us for the whole year, we've kind of intentionally set out to do something. Over in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, there's probably what is the most famous sermon ever preached. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's some of those profound uh, information that he's giving. And, and basically what has happened is he, just over Matthew chapter 4, he's gathered together a group of disciples. He finishes up calling disciples in Matthew chapter 4. And then in Matthew chapter 5, so at the very beginning of his ministry, he goes up in the mountaintop and he, he spends time with the Father. And then he comes down, still on the mountain, but on a flat part of the mountain. And he starts to engage with a group of his disciples and a group of people who just have a bunch of questions. Who say, I've heard something about this Jesus. I've heard he's a powerful teacher. I here he teaches a little bit differently. And so there's a group of people that have gathered to hear this message. And in doing so, I'm convinced, the more I read this, I'm convinced Jesus is saying to this small group of people, he's saying, listen, we're about to go and revolutionarily change the world. Before we do that, I want to give you the most foundational teaching I can, but it's going to be very, very different from anything you've ever heard. You see, gathered in that group, of people. There were fishermen. There were tax collectors. There were political zealots. There were people who, see, for, for a Jewish child growing up, they were, they were steeped in, in religious tradition. They went to religious schools. But at some point, if they were considered not good enough, see, there were, there were, there were teachers, there were rabbis, and if they're considered not good enough, they would say at a young age, go and learn your, your father's trade and go do that because you're not good enough to make it with the religious elite. And so for some of these kids, they'd longed their whole life to, to hear a teacher come and say, hey, come and follow me. And that's why when Jesus does that, some of the guys drop their nets and they go and, and follow him because they were waiting to hear those words. And so here's this group of people who are not considered really religious elite. They were just normal people. And Jesus says, listen, the message that we have for you is going to be very, very powerful. 
Because the religious elite aren't getting this message. And if, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard about some people called the Pharisees. And if, if you went to church at all, you probably have a negative connotation about this group of people called the Pharisees. You see, in Jesus' day, there were about 6,000 Pharisees. And these were people who were considered the religious elite. They were steeped in religious tradition. They'd learned it. They'd lived it. And they were really, really good at putting up a very, very strong front of being outwardly religious. And yet we find over and over again, it's the Pharisees who are in direct conflict with Jesus. And and, and it didn't start off that way. They're actually in the period between the Old and New Testament. There's 400 years between the Old Testament completing and the New Testament beginning. In the 400 years, the Pharisees are setting out to try to do the right thing. But there's a danger, and this could be for any of us. There's a danger when we fall more in love with the things of God than when we fall in love with God. See, I'm convinced we can do that today. We're trying to follow Jesus, and yet we can get more excited about doing the things of God than I am getting excited about actually loving God. And the Pharisees, at some point, they started to do that. They started to say it's a whole lot easier just to figure out how to go through the motions because I can learn how to do the right thing so that I appear holy. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm not concerned with you appearing holy. I'm concerned with you being holy. And so as the Pharisees sometimes would confront Jesus, Jesus comes with some very blunt words for the Pharisees. Before we get back to the Sermon on the Mount, I want to read this. Over in Matthew chapter 23, starting off in verse 27, Jesus is actually speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's saying a couple of woes to them, but I want to focus on just one of them. In in verse 27, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now again, these were religious elites. For, for, for most people that, that viewed these Pharisees, most people viewed them and said, I mean, they're going through the motions. They look really, really good. They appear holy. In fact, they were really good at standing on street corners and praying out loud to be heard by other people. Have you guys ever been in a setting where someone prayed out loud? Like maybe it was for a meal or for a wedding, and they prayed really, really loud, and you thought, man, they are a good prayer. They must have like a deep relationship with God because they they talk so eloquently and it sounds really good. They must be really, really spiritual to be able to pray like that. Well, that's how most people regarded the Pharisees. Man, they're good prayers. We know for sure because we can see it. They're openly fasting. They're, They're depriving themselves of meals because they love God so much. And so Jesus comes and everyone else is kind of thinking they're really, really religious and really spiritual. And Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like, and he uses these words, you are like whitewashed tombs. I don't know about you, but that's not a very friendly thing to say about some religious people. But Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, the Pharisees were all about an external conformity to a set of rules, to the law. And Jesus isn't going to say the law is bad. In fact, he's going to say the law is good. But they're so in love with the law of God, they'd lost their love for God. And so Jesus says, man, on the outside, you give a great appearance. On the outside, man, the the tombs are, are whitewashed on the outside. They're really, really clean. People want to make sure the outside looks really good. But on the inside, you're full of dead people's bones and you're full of uncleanness. As a dead body, people who are, who are clean, ceremonially unclean, are not allowed to be around that dead body. And so he said, on the inside, you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And then he says in verse 28, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Everyone that sees you on the outside, man, you look really, really good. But within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
For the Pharisees, they were in love with the law. They weren't in love with the lawgiver, but they were in love with the law. And so Jesus says, man, on the inside, even the person who is in love with the law, on the inside, he has become lawless. And he's full of hypocrisy. And I think about that because we're going to get into teaching today that Jesus gives. It says, I want to get down to the core of what the message of the gospel is about. It's not about an external making sure on the outside we appear to be holy, but that on the inside that our heart is beating passionately to love God with everything that we can and love the people we come in contact with regardless of who they are. So with that being said, let's flip back to Matthew chapter 5 and get into this text. In Matthew 5, we see the beginning of, the, of, of the, this, this Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are people, or happier people that do these things. And then at the very next part, he starts to turn the corner in this discussion, in this sermon. And he says, as he's about to introduce some specific topics, he says, do not think, in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I've, I've read the Bible. For half of my life, I've, I've studied the Bible, and I know where Jesus is going with this. But for his early followers, they didn't know. All they knew was he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's a good teacher, he's a powerful teacher. And I don't know where he's about to go with this, but I know he's saying, I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. He's about to break down their understanding of the law. But before he does that, he says, listen, I want you to know that what I'm about to teach you is the actual intent of why the law was given. So I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass in the law to all that is accomplished. Not the smallest letter, not the smallest marking of the law is going to pass away. In fact, verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, which is going to boggle their mind. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, for the people in Jesus' day, they looked at the Pharisees as, man, they're the elite. How can my righteousness ever exceed theirs? Jesus, you must have something for us that they're not aware of. And ultimately, we realize now that the only way that we are considered righteous now is not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did for us. But Jesus is about to break down the law and say, listen, they thought they got this. In fact, you've heard this taught. And that's why the series is called, But I Say. You've heard this taught, Jesus would say. But I say, and I want to get down to the heart of the issue of the law. So he's going to break down six different things. We're going to spend four weeks talking about six things that Jesus breaks down and says, you've heard this, but I say this. And I'm convinced that if we today, individually as followers of Christ, would get the genuine heartfelt teaching of what Jesus has, and if we could get this as a church, that literally as Jesus gathers together a group of disciples, and he says, let's go change the world, and they do, that if we could grasp the very same message with the same heart, we have the same ability living inside of us. It's God's spirit living inside of us. We have the same ability to change the world. Not because of what we have in our talents and our abilities, but because of what Jesus can do through us. And so Jesus approaches them and says, Unless you have this righteousness that exceeds other scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this. He gets into the first one. And he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus says, I understand this law. It's actually the sixth law in the commands. Uh, a lot of the laws we have today in our system is based upon the Ten Commandments. And he says, most of you have grown up understanding that you should not murder. 
Now, I don't have necessarily a bunch of rules at my house, but I think one we could all establish for our families is it's a good idea to tell our kids, don't ever murder anybody. Like, that's one that's pretty basic. We should be able to knock that one out of the park. If not, we have some issues. I've never murdered anybody. I don't know anybody here that has. Maybe you have. I don't know. But that's pretty foundational. We could walk outside and say people don't have any. People are looking around like, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I see y'all doing this. Y'all, anyway, with foundation, we say, I, I know that we shouldn't do this. I can walk out the door today and find a person who says, I don't have any interest in church, any interest in God. And I could ask them, is it wrong to murder? Absolutely. Jesus says, this is foundational. You've heard it said, and most people agree, you should not murder. And on the outside, I figured out a way to make sure, at least as far as I know, that I'm not going to murder anybody. And I feel pretty safe in the assumption that's not going to happen. But Jesus says, that's not enough. You should not murder. That's, That's pretty foundational. It's pretty basic. But then he says, but I say to you. I'm going to see those words over and over over the next couple weeks. You've heard it said, but I say, let me get now to the heart of why that law is there. Let me get to the intent of the law. You've heard it said, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So he says, it's one thing to say that I'm not going to murder somebody that I haven't murdered someone. But it's another thing altogether to say, it's not saying they're equal in terms of the weight of the sin, but the heart is really the same. If I come to someone that I'm supposed to love, I'm supposed to be passionate about, and I say to that person, I hate you, or I'm angry with you, and the anger gets in the way. And someone asked a great question after the first service. They're like, well, is, is anger always wrong? Like, sometimes people hurt my family, and I get really angry. And the Bible does speak about a, a justifiable anger. Be angry and sin not. And, and Jesus, in fact, expresses a, a righteous anger. But it's talk about an anger that responds, an anger that, that provokes in, in your life and brings about even hatred. He says, if you're, ha- if, if you're angry, if, if, if you're making fun of, of somebody... Or the last one, the last one's a very interesting one, where it says, whoever says, you fool. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I thought, you know what, I've probably done that a time or two. How many would say, yeah, I've probably called someone a fool in the past? How many of y'all say I said that already this morning? Yeah, <laughs> like, like we call people, yeah, like you fool, and sometimes I say it about myself, JJ, you fool, why'd you do that? And, and, and the wording there, even though it says you fool, there's actually a word there called, the, the, the word that appears there in the original was the word raka, and it literally means uh, being in a position of, of moral judgment, so he's saying, if, if you think that it's okay for you to be angry with an anger that responds, or you think it's okay for you to make fun of, or if you think it's okay for you to sit in a spot of moral judgment over your brother, then you have to realize the heart issue remains the same. See, overwhelmingly, the response, when I talked to a couple of guys, who said, J.J., you don't even know it, but the thing that I wrote on my chain was that I have an anger problem. The thing that I wrote on my chain is, is that I have a hatred problem. And Jesus says that we think, thou shalt not murder, if I, if I hold up to that law, that I'm fulfilling the law. But Jesus says the law is actually to teach us not the negative, but the positive side, and to love that person. And if I hate a person, it leaves no room for love. 
And so Jesus says, listen, when it comes to your relationships, you're commanded to love. And in fact, if we had time to break this down, we're commanded to love uh, other believers. We're commanded to love unbelievers. We're commanded to love the world. Like pretty much we're commanded to love everybody. And so Jesus says, if there's room in your heart for there to be hatred, if there's room in your heart for you to be angry, and listen, people are going to do stuff to you that's going to be meant to get you angry. This week you're going to be at work and there's going to be a coworker that does something and you want to say, you fool, you numbskull, why did you do that? And you want to lash out in anger. But Jesus says, listen, if you get the heart intent of the law, the law is what we're supposed to love the people coming in contact with. And if you're busy hating, if you're busy being angry with a person, it's not giving you the capacity to love. So Jesus says, if that's where you're at, if you're sitting in judgment, then you're going to be liable to judgment. And then he begins the first of two analogies. He says in verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So if you've done something to offend your brother, if you've done something to hurt your brother, he has something against you. And then you come to worship God. You come to bring a gift at the altar to God. And you come, and there's not a consistency in your life. You're saying with one breath that you love God, and yet you're doing something with your life that's saying that to, to your brothers, made the image of God that I don't like you, that I don't care about you, and you've not made that right. That's hypocritical. And how can we love God who we've never physically seen, and yet not love our neighbors that we're coming in contact with on a daily basis? It's hypocritical. And so he says, if that's where you are, if you're offering a gift to the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar. Go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Very rarely have I seen this done accurately. I have seen it done accurately, but very rarely. I've seen families that are really, really close. And something happens, and the family breaks apart. And they have a choice. Someone has a choice to say, I want to see reconciliation happen. In fact, the reconciliation has to happen between us before my relationship with God is fully free. And so he says, first be reconciled to your brother. And I've seen it when they do it well. They say, listen, I'm broken. This, this thing is affecting my family. I need to go deal with this. And when they do it right, what happens is they leave this setting and say, let me go take care of this. And then when they come back, because reconciliation's happened, it gives them a greater appreciation for the worship that is about to happen. And I see families that were torn apart, that there's reconciliation and there's unity, and they're able to worship more freely than they were able to worship even prior to this disagreement. Meanwhile, I see family or, or best friends that have some sort of disagreement, and, and I hurt someone but because my pride gets in my way. I don't want to go and fix that. And I go throughout my life, and I wonder, why is it that I don't have that same passion for God I used to have? Why is it that that emotion I used to feel, why is it it feels like it's not there anymore? It's because we've, we've messed up our relationships here. And it's affecting our relationship here. Now, God's grace is abounding. It's, it's huge. And he forgives us. And yet we realize we have a responsibility to lay down our gifts before we come and worship. Say, so God, let me go fix this. Let me go fix this. And when I fix it, I come back here ready to worship. It's going to give me a newfound freedom to be able to do so. So the first analogy says, if you have offense against your brother, go make that right. If that escalates a little bit, verse 25, he says this. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Second analogy, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. 
So it's escalated pretty big. Lest your accuser hand you over the judge, the judge to the guard, and, he be, and, and then you be put into prison. So he says, listen, if, if you have some sort of disagreement, we've offended someone, and it's so bad that your accuser is going to take you to court, on your way to court, do everything you can to reconcile. Because if you don't reconcile now while you have a chance, eventually that person is going to take you to a judge, and that judge is going to take you to the guard, and eventually you're going to go in prison. And because I think Jesus knows something about the legal system and about lawyers, he adds on to the end of it, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. He says, man, you can try to take care. Be stubborn. Try to handle this all yourself. Try not to be reconciled, but think, I'm a man. I can take care of this. And we go and we try to take care of our own stuff. And sometimes it means we're not trying to reconcile. We're not trying to fix things. I'm just going to man up and, and bear whatever happens, happens. And he says, listen, in fact, at the very end it says you'll have paid the last penny. That word last penny means literally one-fortieth of one day's wage. You make $100 a day, that means $2. You'll be down to your last $2. That's all you're going to have left. Because sometimes in our stubbornness and our our hard-heartedness. We want to do everything ourselves. We don't want to go through the process of reconciliation. And so we think it's okay for me just to be angry. It's okay in my anger for me to respond and to lash out. And I know there can be people this week who do things specifically with that intent in mind. There are people in our life, I'm convinced, I've been around long enough to know there are people who specifically are going to try to get you mad this week. Sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes it's accidentally just how they are. But there are people who, who work hard to get you mad, and they want you to lash out. And Jesus says, listen, don't respond in anger. Because even though it can escalate, murder is much worse in terms of the way we view sin, the heart issue remains the same. If I choose to be angry at someone, if I choose to make fun of someone, if I choose to judge someone and sit in judgment, then I myself am in danger of the very same judgment. See, I don't think Jesus is trying to add to the law. Even though someone would look at this and say, Jesus, I had the thou shalt not murder down. Like I had, I wasn't going to murder anyone. And Jesus, you go and you add, am I supposed to be angry with someone? Like I know I've been angry with people. And, and you say, I'm not supposed to judge someone. I'm not supposed to make fun of someone. I've done those things. The, the murder part I had down. But Jesus, you're adding to the law. Jesus, I've not come to, to, to break the law or even to add the law. I've come to fulfill it. See, the law's original intent from the very beginning is to teach us to love the people we come in contact with. The law's the very intent from the beginning. They had to break it down to get more specific. But at the very end, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? And he responds, says, love God and love people. That's as simple as it gets. He breaks the law down and says, this is the command, love God and love people. If you do those two things, you're going to fulfill the law. And so Jesus here isn't trying to add to the law. He's trying to complete the law. I say, listen, I know you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I'm telling you, if, if you're inside of you, if, you're, if there's anger and there's hatred building up, your heart's position is the very same as a person who commits murder. Just you're being more sensible about it. But Jesus says this. As there's no room for love if we hate people, there's also no room for hate in our heart if we love people. And again, the command that's there is for us to command those people that are inside the church, uh, to love the people inside the church, to love those outside the church, to love everybody we come in contact with. Now that responds in different ways. I get that. But the, the command there is to love. And the command is that we're supposed to see people through the eyes that God sees us. 
And when he looks at, at me, even though I, I mess up on a daily basis, he looks at me and he says, I'm not going to respond in anger. I'm not going to respond in, in judgment because I'm choosing to love you. And we get that about the people we care about the most. The people we care about the most, if, if they make mistakes, we might, because we have tempers, because we get hot-headed, we might lash out in anger first, but then we go and try to fix it and say, I'm, I'm not going to be that upset. Let's go work on this. And Jesus says, that same mindset, we need to approach every person we come in contact with because there's no room for hatred when love is, is where we're residing. So to complete the law, Jesus says, to fulfill the law, forget about murder, that's pretty basic. Everybody gets that. But I'm saying if you really want to be passionately seeking me, learn to love. Learn not to be angry. Learn not to, to judge. Learn not to make fun of people. But learn to love. And if you love, then you're gonna, it's going to take care of all those things. You're not going to do all those other things because love is the focus. And so we go back this week. And we think about people we come in contact with. And I don't know, for you, maybe, it was, maybe you already know right now. You responded this week at some point with some level of anger towards someone that you came in contact with at work or, or at home or, or, or a relationship that you have, and there was some sort of anger that expressed itself, and you've not fixed it. She says you need to go fix it. You need to go take care of that. Otherwise, it's going to continue to affect you. And even if that wasn't the case, even if it's just as people come in contact with and say, you know what, I didn't necessarily show anger towards them. I didn't show resentment uh, maybe if someone asked me this morning in the first service, listen, I, I, I didn't, I was really mad at someone. I didn't verbally express it all. I kept it inside. Like I, I wasn't yelling at them or anything, but inside I said some really, really mean things. So that's just as bad, isn't it? I said, yeah, it really is. Like we don't want to think about it because it's not external, but God says, I'm not, I'm not concerned with that external appearance of holiness. I'm concerned with you being holy. And, and, and if we hide those things, we say, I'm going to store those things up, eventually what's on the inside at some point comes out. Out of, a, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's on the inside eventually comes out. So Jesus says, I, want to, I don't want to worry about cleaning the outside. The Pharisees are really consumed. Let me clean up the outside of the vessel, hoping the inside eventually gets clean. Jesus says, no, let me start with the inside of the vessel. When I was in high school, I want to close out with this. When I was in high school, I had a friend of mine, and, and he, like I didn't, in high school, I wasn't the neatest person, uh, but he had a car, and when we got on the inside of the car, like he would just go to fast food places, and he'd, he'd take the wrappers, he'd throw them, he'd throw them on the floor, and I got into his car, and I felt like, man, when I got in the car and I got out, I'm like, I need to take a shower just after being in your car. Like, like I'm not the, the cleanest guy in high school. I wasn't the cleanest guy, and yeah, I got in here, I'm like, Jack, we got to do something about this. Now, he would wash the outside of his car on a weekly basis. Like, he wanted to make sure the outside of the car shined. And I'm like, Jack, it's nice. The outside's all clean, but this inside's a mess. Get a garbage bag. I'll help you out now. <laughs> and if you've been in a car like that, you know. But compare that to the feeling of, of when you get inside a freshly detailed car. Like, you spend good money to have a professional come in. I mean, they're armor-alling everything and making it look really, really clean. They're getting the dirt and the crevices that there's no way normal people can get to them. And you get in a car that's been freshly cleaned like that, and you just feel really, really good. See, I learned something at one point. For me, when I own a car, I don't spend a whole lot of time outside of the car looking at the outside of the car. But I spend a lot of time inside the car seeing what it's like. And so when I get in a car that's been freshly detailed, I like the outside to look good too, but when I'm in a car that's been freshly detailed, man, it just feels good driving a vehicle like that. 
God says some people are so concerned with cleaning the outside of their body when they're spending most of their time on the inside. Clean out the inside first and then take care of the outside and it'll start to take care of itself. Let's pray.